The Athletic. MotoGP had to move its 2023 Australian Grand Prix to Saturday to make sure it happened, but thank goodness it did because we were treated to a, perhaps the best race of this quite good season so far and at last a victory for Johan Zarco. I'm Matt Beer. This is the Race MotoGP podcast. I'm joined by Simon Patterson and Val Harunchi. As usual, Simon is uh, in a nice warm house in Australia now rather than in the rain-lashed, windswept Philip Island paddock. And Val is in a paddock this weekend, but not a MotoGP one. He's coming to us from a corner of the Hockenheim Media Centre surrounded by boxes and a buzzing fridge. Yeah, boxes and a buzzing fridge. And I'm looking out the, the window right now in the ADAC GT Masters cars are qualifying and next up, there's going to be DTM, and there's a very good chance they will have their title decided in qualifying while I'm talking in the podcast. So it's a, it's a funny situation all around. But yeah, it's such a, such a the weirdest maybe place yet. I've recorded certainly a MotoGP podcast, but Simon Simon has me beat basically every week. Yeah, this is this is not really touching Simon's Simon's locations at all, is it? But it's. Basically, Val, I'm appreciating your dedication because you're out there at, D- at the DTM getting in a lot of interviews for some slightly different features for us this weekend. And despite that, you, you've been getting up to follow MotoGP, dive into the audios from the paddock and be fully up to speed. Uh, but I particularly enjoyed it on Sunday morning European time when you popped up at, I think, two three uh, 3.55 a.m. It would have been German time, sleeping yeah. in, in a hotel reception for reasons we won't get into. And when I'm here for the sprint and I was like, just go back to bed. Which I did, <laughs> and it was the right decision. Absolutely. So, Simon, this this is a this has been a strange week for MotoGP, and the signs that it was going that way were very clear long before we got to Phillip Island with how bleak the forecast looked for the week looked for the weekend and for Sunday in particular. So, take us through how it unfolded in the paddock, because right from the first time riders were speaking on Thursday, there were calls for for change to the schedule. Yeah. So this was like. This started as a very typically Phillip Island race week in that the MotoGP paddock arrived on Tuesday and Wednesday and it was lovely, beautiful. Um, half the paddock were out surfing, the weather was sunny, it was warm, it was a little bit chilly in the mornings, but that's normal this time of the year. Uh, but there'd been this forecast since the very beginning of the weekend that said that Saturday was going to be, or Sunday was going to be much colder. There was a strong chance of rain and more than anything else, um, there was going to be really high winds. And and when we say really high winds, we mean really high winds. Uh, the first batch of media debriefs we did on Thursday afternoon, uh, one of the first people we interviewed was Jean Zarco. And he one of the first things he said was, we've all looked at the forecast. They need to swap the sprint race and the Sunday race. They need to have the main race on Saturday afternoon so that we can all score maximum points because nothing's going to happen on Sunday. And like hire Johan Zarco to pick your lottery numbers because he was exactly on the money. Um, he called that completely right. Uh, as we went into Friday, that became, it kind of became, you know, more obvious as the forecast started to firm up that that was looking like what was going to happen. Uh the the uh, sort of a few Australian friends of mine, even while it was still beautiful in Phillip Island, a few Australian friends of mine who live in places like Adelaide, which is a little bit further along the coast, started messaging to say the storm that is coming your way is, you know, it's rolling our way, it's rolling along the coast. It's 500 kilometers from you. The forecast is accurate. I hope you guys have backup plans. So on Friday afternoon, uh, we got called into a press conference with, 
the the powers that be from uh, from Dorna and the FIM safety officers and uh, race director Mike Webb sat us down and Carlos Espeleta, the sporting director, said, "Look, we're we're going to basically do what Johan Zarco said. Um, we're going to run the Sunday race on Saturday afternoon. We're going to tentatively run the Sunday the the sprint race on Sunday." Uh, but already at that point, there was, you know, there was a, a fairly obvious warning sign that things were not going to pan out well on Sunday because they also announced that any Sunday ticket holders were allowed in on Saturday, which is a, a bit of a warning sign. Um, from there, we we had Saturday as planned with the, the sprint race at the end of the day, which was, we'll get, or the, the main race at the end of the day, sorry, which we'll come to in time. Um, we got up on Sunday morning woke up about 6.30 because I wanted to be into the paddock in time to see the South Africa-England Rugby World Cup game in the media centre. And it was hammering down rain at that point. But it wasn't windy. It was um, it was rainy, it was wet, it was cold, but it, it wasn't yet raining, or it wasn't yet windy. So we got in, we ran a Moto2 and Moto3 warm-up, which obviously is the first time this year because they were scrapped this year uh, to make room for the, the changed Sunday schedule. But the guys went out, it was wet, there was a few crashes, there was quite a few crashes in Moto2, to be honest, um, but it wasn't. still wasn't windy. Moto3 race went ahead, it was wet, it was horrible, four guys crashed on the Saiten lap, but whenever you look at the crashes, there were people crashing because it was a wet, cold track, and while there's always a danger in crashing, that's not the, you know, the danger that we were worried about here. Uh, we had that race fine, not a problem. We started the Moto2 race directly afterwards and it was pretty obvious as soon as the Moto2 race started that conditions had started to change and the wind had started to pick up. Um, we, we got nine laps into the, eight and a half laps into the, uh, the Moto2 race and, well, we spoke to, we spoke to race director Mike Webb again after the race and, uh, a few of the, the MotoGP riders had spotted it as well, that basically in the first half of that race, there'd been lots of crashes as there had been in the Moto2 race. But then on lap, I think on lap seven or lap eight, uh, Celestino Vietti went into turn one, uh, went to break and got basically blown off the track. And Webb admitted that that was the first crash that they had seen all day, that they could 100% say that was caused by the wind. So the red flags at that point were out right away. And the, they hadn't done full race distance. So they, they sort of thought for a little bit about what was going to happen. They eventually decided that the Moto2 race was not going to restart. They awarded half points. And then, to be fair to the organisers, within a very short period of time after that, they said what we'd all expected them to say at the beginning. And, you know, we couldn't go ahead and race in this. The, the example that kept getting cited all weekend by a lot of people... Uh, a lot of riders was that in 2019 uh, Miguel Oliveira had a massive crash in FP4 at Phillip Island because he got blown off the track at turn one and when when we were back and looked at that the weather conditions on that day was winds of about 35 kilometers an hour and gusts of about 50 kilometers an hour the the forecast for Sunday which came true was a constant wind of 50 kilometers an hour and gusts of up to 75 so it was always going to be tough to see the sprint go ahead, um, but you know credit to credit to the weather forecasters that got it exactly right. 
credit to Dorna for making an early decision to, to swap those two around and credit to Race Control for, for pretty much actually putting out the red flag right whenever the red flag should have went out and then, you know, calling it a day fairly quickly after that. Um, as as weather delays and terrible conditions go on a race weekend, I think it was probably handled just about as well as it could have been handled by everybody involved. And, you know, we're, we're lucky we got every class got a race out of it, even if one of them was only half distance. When, when Zarco said on Thursday that they should swap the races, I mean, I we did report it, but my honestly, my first hunch was... There's no way. It just doesn't happen because and it's not not like a MotoGP type of thing. It feels like racing championships just aren't massively proactive when it comes to those huge kinds of schedule changes. And it's, you know, it's because of TV contracts, it's because of ticketing, it's because of, you can totally understand it. So when it actually did happen, first I was I was very pleasantly surprised, but also I think it was a huge signal that, oh, Sunday's race just isn't happening. Because if, if, if there was a decent chance it was happening, then yeah, we'd, we'd, we'd probably still try to stick to the original schedule, but it must look really, really bad. And as we found out, it did look really bad. Ultimately, I can't really see much fault with, with how the weekend played out at all, given the, the weather conditions. I think they've done a really good job to give us one of the best races of the, of the MotoGP season. The best race of the MotoGP season, let's, let's be blunt here. Also, fit Moto2 and Moto3 races in. Okay, maybe the Moto2 field isn't so happy that the races got in. Some of them are. Tony Avellino is. But, yeah, maybe maybe that should have stopped before a clear wind-assisted crash. But, you know, what can you do? It's a, obviously a hard one to gauge. I the, the one bit that I did sort of go back to and think about today is... We did get MotoGP track action today, right? We got the, the warm-up in the wet. That was... They, we got 10 minutes. That was kind of okay. The way they've... Or at least most riders said it was kind of okay, but got sketchy towards the end. Now, when you, when you have something like this, you think, well, if you, have a, if you have the time for a timed session, could you have done something with the schedule to also get some semblance of a race in before the conditions got bad? But looking at how it evolved looking at how everything changed uh, over the day. And obviously you do have to have warm up, especially because there was no wet riding to speak about before that moment. So you can't just send them out cold on cold tires and cold, wet tires at a track like Phillip Island. Um, and, you know, Moto2 was already red flagged for, for wind. So the same fate was going to await whatever session was held. And I'm glad Moto3 and Moto2, I'm glad those teams didn't come to Phillip Island all the way to Australia to qualify and then go home is that would be that would be terrible so i no qualms about the sprint not happening in the end uh very happy with how they they sorted it i mean i wasn't on location so i don't know maybe some teams or some people on location would have would have seen other routes or whatever but you know from our from media standpoint and from a from a safety standpoint it all looked very proactive and very good and you know we we do give MotoGP a bit of slack sometimes uh, a bit of flack not slack we don't get so much slack we give it a bit of flack sometimes for some organizational stuff good job this weekend good stuff so you know the the, the thing to remember about sunday's schedule specifically uh we started with moto 3 warm-up on sunday morning at 8 20 and realistically that just couldn't have been pushed any earlier because uh you know the the um before that the track was just not warm enough 
There was just no way we could have run that at any other point. That was the bare, the, the, the absolute bare minimum time that we could have went on track. So we got them at first. They needed some track time because there was a chance that they were going to get a race. And like Val says, they deserved a race in some shape or form. Um, the MotoGP guys would have needed a wet practice anyway. So they had to have their warm up too. And literally the, the only thing that could have been done any differently today was running a MotoGP sprint race directly after MotoGP warm up that would have then... You know, the way the day progressed would have meant sacrificing the Moto2 race. Moto2. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I agree. You know, because Moto3 would have been able to run in the Moto2 window and would probably have been red flagged. And then we'd be, you know, we would have seen Moto2 go ahead, not go ahead. Um, it's now 6.24 in the evening. I'm sitting in the house that we've rented in Phillip Island. And uh, the, the deck in the house has a an umbrella on it. And it's flapping so much that, you know, we still couldn't race. So that this wind hasn't died away. Um which is what the forecast said it was going to, which is why they were so confident in making that call, you know, what, six hours ago that nothing was going to go ahead. So fair play for that as well. Um, is it, is it yeah, the same but, umbrella that got blown onto the track in Moto2? <laughs> <laughs> no, it is not the same umbrella that got blown onto track in Moto2, but the fact that an umbrella was blown onto track in Moto2 kind of shows you how much the wind was starting to pick up towards the end of that race. Um, the, the only thing that could have been done differently... Um, it is a bigger picture thing, and that's you know the question of coming to Phillip Island at this time of the year, which is just it, it it comes up every year because every year we come to what I think is probably universally the most loved circuit in the calendar in a stunning location full of really passionate fans, and every year at least one day of it just devolves into horrible, horrible, horrible weather conditions. Um. There was a big push in the paddock to see it moved to the start of the season. People really, really want to come here in March. Uh, you know, make this make this one of the opening rounds. Come here after Qatar and then go to Mandalika afterwards, whenever it's still the warmer time of the year in, in Malaysia as well, or in Indonesia as well. Have a, a bit of a an Asian tour instead of an American tour at the very beginning of the season. But the problem is that the the organisation that puts on the race at Phillip Island is the Australian Grand Prix Commission, who also organised the Australian Formula One race, which is obviously traditionally a season opener in the F1 calendar. So they can't put on F1 and MotoGP in March, uh, and and that's you know that's kind of the fundamental problem. Um, a few people have said this weekend that Dorna are perhaps open to looking at other options. To organise the race here, uh, because whenever World Superbikes comes to Phillip Island in in February, that race is organised by the circuit, not by the Australian Grand Prix Commission. So maybe there's there's some sort of a hybrid model where the Australian Grand Prix Commission assists as Phillip Island the circuit puts on the MotoGP race. Um, you know, maybe there's there's some movement in the F1 calendar that sees the MotoGP or the F1 race go later in the season, which I know has been talked about and has been experimented with in the past um but until you know essentially until f1 makes that decision for us uh it's looking increasingly unlikely that we're going to change how we operate here is the, is the superbike date also not a problem though because it's the same track two major bike events two months apart or like one month apart M much like 
Much like how we do what Formula One tell us, superbikes do what MotoGP tells them. Okay. So if they have to come here at this time of the year, that's their problem. Um, even though they're owned by the same people, even though Doran organized both, they will be the ones that get sent at this time of the year to take the, the risk with the roulette of the weather um, and we'll get the sunshine, hopefully. And, and also, it's worth mentioning, there's a little bit of paddock bias because the only time that most of the MotoGP paddock have ever been to Phillip Island that's not in October was uh, actually my, my very first event as a full-time MotoGP reporter was a, a pre-season test here in 2016 because they'd resurfaced it. And it was like late February, early March, and it was glorious. And I think all the MotoGP paddock, because that's their only time ever coming to Phillip Island in February, they just always think that Phillip Island at the start of the year is the greatest place on earth as well. So, Yeah, it's, it's a, it would be a rather nice venue for a season opener, wouldn't it, if, if that calendar switch did happen? That could be a lot of fun. But yeah, I, I agree with everything you've said in terms of there's so many occasions historically where we've gone, this session should have been red flagged sooner. This decision should have been made quicker. We shouldn't have been waiting all day for this. There have been too many farces over the years. I don't think there's anything you can really fault MotoGP and Dorna with this weekend. The right calls were made at the right time. There wasn't too much waiting about once once the situation was clear. Safety wasn't compromised. I was surprised how many riders in Moto2 and Moto3 were going off before the race even started. That seemed like a really bad sign of how bad conditions were going to be. And then actually the races, considering considering how many had crashed before even getting to the grid, the races weren't that chaotic relatively until the wind came, were they? No, I mean, Moto3 was, was a relatively standard issue wet Moto3 race, um, despite four people falling off on the sighting lap. But I wonder if that was more than anything else. I think that was probably tire temperature. Um, the Dunlops are notoriously cold, notoriously, uh, sorry, hard to warm up tires. They're notoriously stiff. Um, Luca Marini, whenever we first saw the weather forecast on Thursday, was delighted in telling us all that uh, that he was so happy he wasn't a Moto2 rider anymore because <laughs> the thought of riding around Phillip Island on, on those conditions, on those tires, scared him. Um Raul Fernandez announced that uh, the most scary part of his entire weekend, the most stressful part of his entire weekend, wasn't going out in Q1 trying to get into Q2. It was watching his little brother Adrian leading the Moto3 race for most of it. Oh. Um, <laughs> it, it, it was just, yeah, I think that that is something that happens because of Dunlop tyres. And it, it's something that actually we might see looking really differently next year because it's an area where you'll expect their new Pirelli tyres to actually perform a little bit better. Do you like Formula One but struggle to keep up with everything that's going on? Then we have the podcast for you. Introducing the Race F1 Briefing, the podcast that brings you the latest F1 headlines in 15 minutes or less. With new episodes dropping on all four days of every race event, you'll never miss out on hearing what went down in practice, qualifying or the Grand Prix itself. And we'll also bring you all the behind the scenes news and gossip from the F1 paddock as well. If that sounds like the F1 podcast for you, search The Race F1 Briefing in your podcast app of choice. We'd love to have you join us. So 
So let's talk about the race that did happen rather than the one that didn't. And uh, this was this was pretty special. For most of the Australian Grand Prix on Saturday, it looked like Jorge Martin was going to immediately slash Pekka Banyai's lead and get right back on his tail after his Mandalika mistake. Martin was leading by up to three and a half seconds. Banyai was being pushed back to fifth. This was all going Martin's way. He'd been absolutely dominant in qualifying. Banyai had to come through Q1 again. He did make it to the front row this time, but this narrative of Martin being the quick guy, Banyaya not having that pace was was set again and then not unexpectedly given the fact very very few riders were on the soft rear tire and Martin was one of them Martin's pace absolutely vanished along with his tire grip he goes from fifth first to fifth on the final lap Banyaya sneaks through to second and suddenly Banyaya's lead is rather than going down to four points up to 27 points now someone else won as a result of this we are going to give that man due credit in a moment but first let's talk championship swing let's talk Martin's decision Val go for it so like maybe six or seven laps into the race after you know there were the pretty hectic pretty good opening laps with the battling that largely surrounded Banyaya and sort of trying to see how much of a a blow his championship hopes are going to take that day there was i thought for a second oh is this race going to be bad now are are we in a bit of are we in a bit of a predicament is the are the other 20 laps just not going to be too good but actually very soon it it turned out that the intrigue was was massive and it it was this interesting situation where martin's pace held up but you knew he was in trouble if you were watching the other riders so to start things off it immediately made no sense no sense to, <laughs> to start things off that he went on the soft it made it, it i looked at it and i i think i understood the strategy but i immediately at that point it felt to me like massive hubris so the way i understand it is martin must have been so confident in his upper reaches of pace that he felt the only way he can lose this race is if he gets roughed up. If, 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 there, if it's a traditional Phillip Island pack race and he can't break away and, you know, maybe he catches a wrong line once or twice or maybe, hell, maybe somebody runs him off into, into the gravel and he ends up lost and, you know, loses all the points. So maybe that risk was weighing on his mind and he knew for sure that if he bolts on the soft, then he'll have a clear track for the majority of it. I understand that thinking, but it's... Like I, but I also don't. I would not have done it. I think everybody who, even the other riders who took the soft tire gamble, they either said it or came very close to saying that if I was in a title battle, I just do the same as everybody else. I don't do this. Like Mark Marquez felt he was in a position to roll the dice. Paul Espargaro sort of also suggested that more or less. If if they're in a title battle, no, they just don't do it. And it did look like it was going to work but i want to i want to make a clear distinction here it it's not that the eight or ten or twelve corners or whatever were the difference between genius and failure no even if he held on i think this was a bad decision i think the process here was bad i think even if he held on circumstantially uh he made his life harder and he put himself at risk even if he even if he did win and he didn't win and he he did catch some lucky breaks in terms of the pack catching him up i think with a couple laps to go when when he was being caught up uh there was the massive johan zarko lunge on brad binder that slowed the momentum of the chasing pack and at that point i thought oh 
actually Jorge Martin might have got away with it, and then his pace just completely cratered, and it didn't didn't end up mattering. Martin held it really well, which some were really impressed with the way he specifically pace managed and managed to eke out the soft for as long as they did. Others, specifically Paul Espargo, pointed out that the Ducati is very good at preserving the tires, so if there was any bike to try this on, it was that bike. But I remember I remember the moment where I realized, oh, he, he might, he probably won't win this. And it was a moment where, so you watch Marc Marquez's race, right? And he's, in the early going, he's like pushing against Banyaya and up front and obviously you expect him to go backwards in some way but you know at, at a certain point he goes backwards and he stabilizes around 10th right 9th or 10th he's running there and it seems like you know the pace isn't good but it's it's competitive enough and I look away and I focus on something else probably the battle for second or third and then I look back at the live timing lower down and I see Marcus 15th and I realize oh uh-oh and I look at I look at Paul Espargaro, I realize he's like out of the points. I look at Raul Fernandez, the only other rider on the soft rear tire, and I realize he's out of I don't remember if he was out of the points, but not competitive. Far away, not setting competitive lap times. And at that point I was like, however good Jorge Martin has been a space managing this, the same is coming for him. And like if he's very, very lucky, it's coming late enough to where it doesn't matter. But when it comes, that three second that three-second lead is nothing. And we saw, like, with seven, six laps to go, he started losing four-tenths a lap, which was still... If he could have sustained that at that time, that would have still been good enough to win. But it was only ever going to get worse. And at that point, you know, you knew he's in trouble. And and he was in trouble. And I... I think it was a really bad decision. I mean, I, I just... I think it's 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 kind of a shocker. I mean, that's that's all I can say, really. I He knows it. Everybody else knows it. Uh, some rivals were more gleeful than others in pointing out that he did a, a stupid, stupid thing in making this choice. Uh, he deserves a lot of credit for how quick he was all weekend. He should have had this Grand Prix one. But you, you never know at Philip Island. You can never take it for granted, which is, I think, what also pushed him to the gamble. You just you can't guarantee it in races like that. But it was, it was his weekend, and instead, it, this is another big championship blow with time really running out to correct for any more for even the previous blows much less add a new one and lose more points so i i, I still think that that last weekend in, in mandalika was the the sort of the the coup de man of of uh bagnaya's title defense that was the weekend where you know in the end we're going to see that he won the title as as martin crashed out but for for me this weekend is the the one where we saw the sort of the strengths and weaknesses of these two guys fighting for the title because Bagnaya looked to be in trouble basically all weekend, um, as he has a little bit recently, until it came pretty much until the last laps of the race. And then it, it became a po- quite apparent at that point that he wasn't in trouble at all. He was doing the old Andrea de Vizioso trick of managing it to perfection. And he had all the aggression he needed to take the maximum amount of points that were available to him out of Sunday's race. And then on the other side of the, the equation, you had Jorge Martin, who was essentially, you know, values the word hubris. I'd nearly go as far as to say arrogant. Um, he he thought he was better than everyone else because he's been on cloud nine recently. And he discovered that he was better than everyone else for, you know, 26 and a half laps, but not when it counted. Um, the, 
you know, you, you said, Val, you, you saw that fading. Um, and whenever you look at the timesheets, it's really, really obvious that his back tire just falls off a cliff with seven laps to go. And it's not even the lap time that gives it away. If you look at the, the speed times, he goes from doing like 348 through the speed trap every lap to just losing eight kilometers an hour every lap because he's losing so much drive out of the last corner. Um, a, a friend of mine was messaging Casey Stoner during the race. And with seven laps to go, Casey messaged him to say, Martin's back tire gone. He's going to finish fifth. <laughs> wow. It, it was, you know, Casey, Casey read the situation perfectly. Um, he knew what was coming and he was exactly right. That is exactly what happened in the end. And Martin did not need to do that because, you know, it's, it's I, I call him arrogant, um, but it's like misplaced arrogance because he's, he's fast enough to win in a pack race in the medium tire. He, he would have been fast enough to beat Bagnaia, or at least put on a very good show against Bagnaia, if he'd been the fifth bike in that five-rider pack that was fighting for the win, as opposed to being the fifth bike in it that was being gobbled up by the other four who were actually fighting for the win. Um, he, yeah, I, I don't know what brought him to that decision. And I don't know why Ducati let him run that decision either, or his team, because that's the sort of gamble you take when you're Marc Marquez on a struggling Honda and you think, you know what, if I stick in a soft tire, I can be on TV fighting for the podium for 10 laps and we all know what's going to happen at the end, but who cares? You know, Martin cannot be taking those sort of gambles while he's fighting for the championship. And, and it might actually, you know, I don't know, does it maybe it reveals something about how he actually sees the championship battle and how maybe he actually doesn't necessarily see himself as as having the pace to beat Bagnaia in a straight shootout, even if he does have that pace, because otherwise, why would you do really dumb things like this? To me, it just came across in quite an extreme way as a difference between a rider who has had some title fights now and won one of them and knows what counts when to be stealthy, basically, and a rider who is very naive about being in a title fight because he's not been in one in MotoGP before and has just made a big mistake the week before and is not making a great decision i can i can can i see martin's logic i was about to say i could the way he explained himself after the race was it was impressively calm impressively mature we wrote about that on the site on saturday just saying actually martin in the past has often kind of huffed off if he's had a bad race but he you know he's fronted up twice now in two weeks and gone this is this is what happened and why yeah um i'm fine with explaining it to you which which i, I really admire and it does show he's kind of maturing into a proper proper title contender that's great his logic was that he had been using the soft a lot in practice. It was good. He's used the soft when other people haven't before, and it's worked for him. So he didn't see it as a gamble. Well, he the way he phrased it was it was you you tried to give him an out, Simon. You said maybe you didn't see it as a gamble because it was it was logical to you because it's going well. And he was like, well, obviously it's a gamble when you get to the grid and everyone else is on a different tire. And, you know, his point was whether I meant it to be a gamble or not. It clearly was which is, is great hindsight and, again, great mature hindsight as well. Uh, I thought Banyaya was... I don't know if he was being deliberately mischievous, but it was definitely amusing post-race on Saturday. Like Banyaya's first answer in the press conference was along the lines of, well, yeah, I was in Q1. I wasn't very quick in practice because I was working really, 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 really hard on the medium tyre, the one that would get me to the end of the race. Like, 
small raised eyebrow in Martin's direction. Um, other riders, Luca Marini particularly, another VR46 Academy graduate like Banyai, was very much like uh, Martin was completely crazy. He would have beaten Banyai easily. Marini suggested Martin was trying to out-psych Banyai by going for the soft, which I don't know if that much thought went into it, but I... It's almost like Martin had like 25% of a thought of, I need to obliterate everyone. I'm behind the championship. I'm an underdog anyway. I've got to do the thing that makes me go really, really, really fast. And then Zarko as well kind of almost gave him an out saying, yes, he's good on that tyre. Yes, he used it a lot in practice. But I think it was Zarko who said, oh, no, it's Banyaya who said he didn't do it for a whole race distance at any point. So, I uh, yeah, I want to be a bit sympathetic to Martin because I don't think it was completely mad. But it... It was a convers- It was like a conversation got a quarter of the way through and then they just went with it rather than getting to the end of the conversation and going, ah, no, this would be a bad idea for these reasons. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm sympathetic because, because of the reason that I, you know, that I cited. I think you just, you don't want to be in a Phillip Island pack race if you're really fast. I, for me, that really is, I think, probably central to it. You, you would like to take your chances in clean air. That, for me, that's, I suspect that's the main reason. But... There has been some talk, and I think also Martin to Spanish media, if I understood it correctly, also pointed out that, okay, I messed up, but it, it would have been nice if somebody at Ducati or somebody at Michelin gave me more input. And I think it is true that obviously the might of the machine behind Banyaya and behind Martin, you know, they're two different things. They, they've given Pramac a great package, and Pramac is a great team, but you know, works the Cati's, works the Cati. And even beyond that, I don't know, Banyaya pulls up on the grid with a soft rear, he immediately gets like a phone call from Valentino Rossi telling him, take that off. Yeah. Take that off right now or you're never allowed back on the ranch again. Take it off. Because you know, basically some things like that have basically happened with Valentino Rossi giving Banyaya pointed yeah. free race advice. At the same time, you did not need to be clairvoyant not to do this. That's, I'm, I'm not like, I don't know tires and stuff, but I, I could have told you, no, don't, I think. And the fact that most, most riders agreed and those who did try it were riders sort of approaching the race with a, ah, what the hell, I'll give it a go. I think, I think that does tell us a lot. And, you know, it's, it's human to make mistakes. I, I don't want to be like needlessly critical about it. I don't want to call anybody you know, stupid. This is a hard championship and I, I again I do see the logic it's it's not like he's throwing the championship on purpose or anything he's trying to maximize his his results and his his opportunities but I it's just shouldn't shouldn't have done it I I don't know it's easy to say in hindsight but I think it was also easy to see in pre-race and it's it's also what I would have said if he won I, I love that with his um with his passionate defense of, of why Ducati had an advantage in telling Bagnaia not to use the soft and to go with the medium because of the might of big Ducati's power, Val has just inadvertently made my argument once again for why satellite teams can't win MotoGP World Championships. Because that is what it comes down to. You know, we know that Ducati have like an AI computer software that determines tire wear. And I don't know how much of that data is shared across you know, all, all elements of the team, but for sure, Bagnaya had a good look at it and it, it factored into his decision. I mean, I, I, the one thing I will say for Martinez, I think maybe the decision, I don't know if it defends him or not, because he should know better, but 
I, I think the decision would have been better informed had we had the opportunity to run a sprint race as planned, where this media, the soft tire would have been the obvious option. Um, maybe if he'd done 12 laps on it or 13 laps on it or whatever the sprint race, 13 laps, I think. Um, if he'd done 13 laps on it and seen how it was at the end of those, maybe he would have been much more inclined to go the other way for the... Uh, for the, for the main race had it been on Sunday but at the same time when you're in this position where things are a bit you know up and down wobbly schedule changes blah 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 you kind of have to go conservative and in, in that option in that time and he didn't he went gung-ho and it, yeah, he paid the price for it it's it's really galling for Martin as well now that this is between crashing from a lead and dropping from first to fifth this is 39 points gone across two weekends just as things were looking really really good for him um banyaya has gained what's banyaya gained five points from it being first not second and probably four points from being second not third in the end at philip island so that's that's basically a 50 point swing in in, in a week virtually Ma- martin did say he's not doing any more gambles he's doing exactly what banyaya does for the rest of the season and he used a phrase like I know I can still win a lot of races this year. Now, that is still just mathematically enough. If he wins everything and Banyo is second in everything, there's still enough of a point swing purely from that for Martin to beat Banyo to the championship if they just finish 1-2 in every sprint, every Grand Prix from here with four races left in this very, very long season. Whether that happens or not, obviously, it's that's very, that's very, very unlikely. But also that cushion goes with one more with one more race going wrong this i can just win every race and it'll be fine even if peko second that's gone isn't it this is this is he's got to he's got to not have anything daft happen at bury ram in a week's time if if we're going to talk about martin as a title contender beyond next week i mean so i first of all i think um mathematically it's probably the biggest title point swing in such a short period of time in MotoGP history because of the schedule and the sprint races, because he yeah. went from plus seven to minus 27 in six days, which is uh, quite impressive. Um, we, we think he was probably already the shortest ever leader of the championship because oh, yeah. it went from leading after the sprint Must race to not leading after the Sunday. So, yeah, we, 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 there's maybe... It, it literally it comes down to uh, what time of the day someone was disqualified <laughs> at in the 1950s. That's the, like, that's the, the decider. Um his problem is that he can't just do what Peko Bagdaya does because they're different riders and they ride in a different way and copying what Peko does is not going to work for him, especially as we go like Thailand and Malaysia are two circuits where Peko Bagdaya is going to be super, super fast. They are two places where he goes really, really well um, and and is yeah, is going to take points out of Martin's lead if Martin just insists on trying to follow him around um, and trying to do what Peko does. Because, yeah, they're, they're two of the biggest opportunities Bagnaya has this year, full stop, never mind in the, this close title race with this little time left to take big chunks out of him. Actually, you just, even even if Bagnaya is a, not like, not your main threat, which he is, but even if he isn't, you just, you can't count on winning all these races in a row in modern MotoGP. You can't bank on it at this point. Martin needs Banyaya to lay an egg somewhere, which is not a good position to be in. Doesn't mean it won't happen. Doesn't mean he can't get Banyaya to buckle under some pressure, but uh, this it should not have been this hard at this point in the season. I mean, from Martin's point of view, Banyaya is someone who can 
crash out of lead himself can end up in Q1 when he needn't. There's, there's still like hope of Banyard doing, doing that egg laying as well. Let's let's finally we, we are we traditionally we spend a long time sometimes getting to the person who won the race and actually on this occasion I wish we hadn't in a way but you get a race rained off you get a massive title swing you get a crazy tire choice from a, a title contender these are reasons to take a while to get to the man who took an unexpected first victory at last Zarco is a Motor Grand Prix, MotoGP Grand Prix winner we've perhaps feared it wasn't ever going to happen particularly the fact he's about to walk away from Ducati. He did it in superb style with no qualms about overtaking Martin. Uh, so, you know, we were wondering if Zarco might block for Martin. Neither of them expect that to happen. Val. Val I was wondering. wondering. Val was wondering. I, 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 what do you mean Val was wondering? <laughs> I wasn't. I knew what was going to happen I, with Zarco. What is, what, what is, what is that accusation? I, I don't remember wondering that out loud. I just remember, I remember bringing Maybe up why... Maybe it then. Someone, someone in the group chat, someone in the group chat told me that he wasn't going to pass them. And I laughed at them. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I actually typed it out loud, but I definitely, uh, to, if I was Zarco, if I was, was Primac team management at that point, I'd have gone just, hold everyone else back. We've got a championship to win. That's the thing everyone's going to remember. Remember. but no it, I, that's that was never it was never realistic even if i do think it would have been sensible but it might not have even been possible with where martin's pace was but let's let's give zarko his due let's have zarko appreciation corner please who wants to go first i think i think the the, the part that where i did think that zarko might be winning this for martin is again the missile overtake on binder which yeah. won't have been which won't have been to help Martin specifically, but just how how Zarco sometimes races at the end of races, also because he usually tends to have a grip advantage, so he he just has to send it sometimes absolutely to to make use of that grip advantage, uh, to not be caught up behind other people, which again he did on both occasions. He overtook Binder, and then it was a very very harsh overtake on on Jorge Martin, but one he had to do because. If you, if you try to play games, if you try to find the cleanest possible way to do it, if you try to run interference for others, well, look, it's been 120 starts, so you got to win, and this is your opportunity to win, and you can't, like, at that point, I think he will have known, I, I can't help you, man. You've made your bed, I can't, I can't do anything for you. Maybe he was a little gentler, Zarko finish, uh, Martin finishes, like, fourth, maybe, or third, but I really doubt it, because he did not look good at the end. Um, I'm look. I'm super happy, and I I was genuinely quite emotional in, in the morning watching that race from the from the hotel, and I you know I woke up really it's a really difficult waking up after a full track day in the middle of the night to watch a full MotoGP Grand Prix. But by the end of it, I was like I was an absolute ball of energy. I loved that race, and I love that Johan won it. Um, I think this season is the first season that I felt that it might not happen and like that it, it's more likely not to happen than to happen and that's because it felt like this season Johan Zarco sort of took a mini step back with the Ducati relative to the others and he instead of the rider that he was who had like his real huge obvious strengths on some weekends and just had some off weekends he seemed to turn into like a uh store brand version of Enea Bastianini from last year, but not as effective. <laughs> and what I mean by that is he could not get his head around qualifying. And then in the races, in terms of late race grip, he was very good. But by that point, it, like, it wasn't to the alien level that Bastianini took it last year. So it was not enough. It was repeatedly not enough, not enough. And for a bit, it looked like it wouldn't be enough again on Sunday. 
Um, the fact that he comes ahead of the Honda move, you will, you might remember. I say you will remember. Like every listener has a encyclopedic knowledge of every nonsense bit I said on this podcast going back however many months. But you you may remember my hunch that. Zarco and an LCR Honda wouldn't actually have that much worse of a chance of winning because at that point I felt like it will have to come in a wet race anyway. And he might, you know, he might be as good in the wet on the LCR Honda than on a Primark Ducati. That was, that was my hunch because I just, I didn't see it in the dry. There are a lot of weekends where I just, I didn't see it. He was qualifying too poorly. He was not starting well routinely. He was, he was leaving himself with too much work to do and there were Every weekend, at least, there was at least one Ducati who was better, and that's enough. That's all. That's all the Ducatis you need, and usually it was more than one. But look, first of all, it was a wonderful ride for him. Second of all, lifetime achievement award. It was about damn time. <laughs> it was about damn time. He led. He has led like 90 laps in his career. This was his 20th podium. The body of work has warranted it. Uh, it would have been a real bummer if Johan Zarco left MotoGP and retired and went, I don't know, to World Superbikes or whatever without having stood on the top step of, of, a, of a MotoGP podium, we would have absolutely 100% regarded Johan Zarco as the greatest MotoGP rider to never win a race, I think. And I'm glad, you know, as, as interesting as that distinction is, I'm really happy he avoids it. He deserves it. I, I'm also, I also really like how he is with us, how open he is with the media, how, how thoughtful he is. Um, it was clearly a very popular winner. You could see it was those really emotional scenes at the end of the at the end of the uh, at the cooldown lap at the end of the race. Uh, Zarco doesn't maybe have the cleanest on track reputation, but there were clearly a lot of other riders in MotoGP who, you know, were as he was riding, were coming up to him as like about damn time, buddy, congratulations. It's very just a very sweet outcome, and it's part of what makes this, I think, the best race of the season. But uh, I don't know. It was, it was also the best race of the season because it kicked ass. That's, <laughs> that's also part of it. I'm, I'm, I'm actually glad we left him to the end because I think it's built into nice, nicely into you know just how special this was because um, you know, him and I talked about this in the press conference afterwards. Winning your first race is one thing. Lots of people have won their first race. Like Alessius Pagaro won his first race where he, he won it by a big, big chunk of time uh, in Argentina. Zarco won his first race in a Phillip Island dogfight that's that would have went down as a classic race regardless of who won it. So, you know, to have that extra badge of honor is awesome. Um and he is gonna live with that forever because he deserves to, because it was so good. And you know what you said, Val, he, he said in the slowing down lap that uh guys were coming up to him and he could see their eyes through the visor and tell from how they looked that they were genuinely happy to be coming to congratulate him on being a MotoGP race winner. And I think that's that's a pretty universal uh, pretty universal thing. Um, because, yeah, everyone... No one dislikes Sarko. Maybe a few people have had encounters with him, whatever. But no one in the grid dislikes him. No one in the paddock dislikes him because it's really hard to because he's, a, like you say, he's... he's honest he's up front he doesn't mince his words but he doesn't bullshit um he, he's maybe not the most obviously popular writer in the grid but he's a really popular writer in the grid so um everyone everyone delighted to see him finally uh, get that off his back because it's been hanging over from for a while and yeah what better way to do it 
it's it's an era where I wouldn't say everyone gets a win, but it is a time when because the satellites are competitive, because so many brands are competitive for a lot of time, most good riders have had a win. So for Zarco to be an anomaly in that and to leave MotoGP without having done that would have been really sad. I, I like you say about his openness. Uh, it, that was very much an evidence on Saturday after the win. One of the first things he said was that it was a weight off his shoulders, not just because it was the first win after so long, but because he was so conscious that he's on the best bike on the grid. He's on a, a factory spec Ducati and other people are winning championships with it. He wasn't even winning a race and he was aware of that, which, you know, he's he's in his nearly mid 30s. So he's kind of got the life experience to know when to when it's OK to admit some weakness as well. And his response to your question in the press conference, Simon, about what it was that had been stopping him showing that pace, I thought was fantastically candid as well. And it was essentially that the way MotoGP bikes and tyres have evolved, the style to be competitive requires a lot of entry speeds with a very extreme lean angle. And that is just not him. He's having to reprogram himself to do it. But you, but that doesn't make it a natural thing. That hampers him both over race distance and, and on on one lap. And it takes, takes a bit of comfort with yourself to be able to admit that actually your style is not what MotoGP necessarily needs and you're having to 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 make yourself fit that against what you've what you've done all your life and I really admired how he did that it also takes a fair bit of self-awareness that a lot of MotoGP riders don't always have um, to to <laughs> you know to, to know what his problems are to know where where his weaknesses are um as well as to say them out loud that's uh that's that's a very Zarco thing actually I think to be both have the awareness and the modesty to be, you know, happy to get up on stage and, and answer a question that a lot of people would have batted off, um, to his credit. A lot of people would not have laid out in an internationally televised press conference why they're not good enough to be in MotoGP. But that's essentially what, you know, it's the way some people would have seen that that question and that response. So, yeah, I mean, what's not to love about him? Now, it also, it all happened on a very Zarco weekend in that this is the guy who went to KTM, trying to lead KTM, it turned into disaster, he splits the team mid-season. This is the guy who then slates a Vintia as a team not worthy of him without realising Ducati's about to make a Vintia quite good so it can get hold of him. Zarco has these career quirks and this season is in some ways the biggest yet. Ducati was keen to keep him, it saw him inheriting Alvaro Bautista's dominant world superbike position in a year or so, well, actually in a year. Um, he had career security with the best bike in MotoGP, followed by the best bike in world superbikes. And he's wandering off to Honda, which is now nicknamed the Orange Mess after our description of that situation last week. And Honda... Th- that has uh, really caught on on social media, by the way. Has it? Oh, lovely. Yeah, it has. <laughs> oh, yeah, big Orange Mess is catching on. Sorry, Honda. Um and he goes to Honda saying, yes, I want to lead Honda forward now. Maybe there'll be a Repsol vacancy for me if Marquez goes. And as, as I went on like an eight-minute rant about on last week's podcast, he's not getting that Repsol vacancy. He's staying at LCR. Uh, that is now official. Um, Repsol's off to do I know, something else rather than taking a logical move. <laughs> but when Zarco talks about that ahead of the weekend, actually, he sounds okay with it, even if it could be interpreted as a snub. He, he's got logical reasons for thinking, actually, maybe this LCR deal looks probably better for me than the a Repsol move might have done. Um, so, so just to go off tangent slightly, um, what Repsol Honda need to do next, uh, if they're not taking you on Zarco, there is only one option, and that is Fabio Di Gentonio. Because, I mean, that kid has been such a slow burner it has taken him nearly two full seasons to get to the point where he's challenging for podiums like all the other Ducati riders. But guess what? It's, uh, you know, we're here. 
he's a podium contender and yeah, I mean, he has absolutely proven himself this weekend. I think it, it, there were signs were there last weekend, obviously that there was something coming. Um, the podium on Sunday was intelligent on Saturday. God was intelligent as well as, as, as fast. Um, yeah, I mean, they should sign him up. They should absolutely put him in the mic for next year. I, I, don't think uh, anyone expected that we'd get to this point in the season and Fabio Di Gentonio would have as many podium finishes in main MotoGP races as his teammate Alex Marquez. Yet here we are. He actually does. Yeah. Also as many podium finishes as, as Mark Marquez, if I'm not mistaken, in, in main, main Sunday races. Um, but yeah, just going just going back to, to Zarco for a second, I think it... It is also it is good that it turned out this way because I think he's a decent fit for LCR. I think LCR does deserve a franchise rider given what has been torn away from it this season with Alex Rins, who is having a major injury question mark again because this weekend didn't go very well and he's had to withdraw because of pain and he's now you know getting his leg checked out again. Yeah, LCR deserved a full Alex Rins season. I think it would have been a really good one, not just on evidence of Kota, but on evidence of the flashes of the fit Alex Rins that we did see on the on the Honda. I'm glad for Lucio Cianello. If, if that is indeed the case, I, th- I would not be surprised if there's more twists coming because it's MotoGP. But if he does secure Johan, I think it's also easier for Johan to accept not being in Repsol colors now that he's a MotoGP race winner. Because that's, you know, which box would you rather take off? Would rather stand on the top step of the podium as appealing as those Repsol colors are? And I don't know. It's... I, I don't know what they should do. I think we'll, we'll return to, to Digi in a second. Uh, but also, Repsol Honda, apart from the lure of the colors and the resource, and presumably you get to fly, fly first class and stuff, but in terms of, in terms of the equipment, again, they're, <laughs> they're going to finish maybe below LCR and the team standings potentially below absolutely everyone. Uh, so, yeah, it's just... You know, he's got a he's got a long twenty twenty four ahead of him, Johan, as does everybody on the Honda. So I don't it I I I'm not too bothered over whether it's on an L C R bike or on a on a Repsol bike. Well, this is this is kind of crystallized a thought in my head where I hadn't joined all the pieces together until you two were both talking, but Dejantonio definitely absolutely should not go to Repsol Honda next year in my eyes. If he does that, that is his MotoGP career over. That is Repsol Honda on the basis of a couple of weeks in which this kid has no pressure on him and is fighting for his future going, yeah, that'll do. And Repsol Honda has destroyed so many riders recently and that is not what Digia actually deserves or needs at this point. It makes me feel like what should happen at Honda now is Digia goes to LCR where there's less expectation, less of a kind of machine of pressure and misery and and stuff move takanakagami up to hon up to repsol and have a year of testing with him supporting joan mir fix things let digia and zarko do some flat out racing with a bit less to lose at lcr um i, I do like what digia's done it's great to see him on the podium i still think uh the, the body of work overall is, is there's not enough to to really be confident that this is this is going to be sustainable. You know, that that's a well-sorted bike. He's got Frankie Carcetti engineering him. There's quite a lot in his favor at the moment. The fact he's got the same podium stat as Alex Marquez, I think it's more of a sign that Alex Marquez hasn't really performed that well overall on that bike. And the fact he's got the same podium stat as Mark Marquez is a sign that he should not go to Repsol because if Mark Marquez is only getting one podium with that bike, 
Digier is not getting a lot, quite frankly, other than looking like he is having a miserable time and shouldn't be a MotoGP, which is what I think will happen if he ends up at Repsol. He also has the same amount to put him as Luca Marini. Yeah, I mean, Alex and Luca have both been hurt, and I, I, I don't think they've had bad seasons, but... Yeah, but... You, 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 I think you look at the points, you, you get a, a decent... And, I mean, Alex Marquez has had an erratic season. I don't think it's been a bad one, also, as a first one, but it's, it's a complete tangent. Yeah, it is. Um, I, I love the Nakagami idea. I really do. It just doesn't doesn't sound like it works sponsor-wise. Yeah, this, I know it won't happen for Itamitsu reasons, yeah. but it just... Yeah. And also, yeah, and, and you know, maybe Darko at Repsol then is better, but again, it sounds like Lucio has already signed some sponsors specifically with the eye of running Zarco and that's you know that is also important and again that's not something that I think Honda wants to mess with given the quality of its satellite team and the fact that its satellite team has other potential suitors for the future I think that I, I still think that's really really important um, in terms of Digia well first of all in terms of Digia to Repsol my main thought at this point is why the hell not because it's not a front running team right now I know it's the colors. I know it carries a lot of the weight to the media attention, but I'm, I'm I don't feel like treating it as this top plum ride anymore. I don't, I don't feel like it. They're last in the team standings or whatever. Maybe penultimate. I'm not entirely sure. No, they're last. Yep, and you know about right because you could barely finish a race on that bike. So about right. Um, Digia. I I know that the body of work isn't huge, but it is such a breath of fresh air to hear a rider give give the spiel of no look it's coming i have the pace the pace is there there's something really good here and they know i'm working hard and it's just the final details you're always so tired of hearing that because sometimes you just you just want a writer to say i'm look i'm not there yet i'm working on it i'm trying to make you better but i'm not doing well right now because that's fine you shouldn't you shouldn't bash people for that but digio was right <laughs> because he's been really good this these recent couple couple of weeks and he was he was fantastic at Phillip Island. It was a it was a majestic ride. Honestly, if he maybe if he had a lot more a bit more experience riding in that sort of way in that sort of position, he could have won this race. Very very possibly he could have won this race. He, he got onto the podium. He's like even he, maybe if he strategized a bit more, there was more on, on on offer. But he was he was not really particularly imaginable at certain points earlier in the season or certainly during his rookie season that he could have a race this good and yeah Philip Island's a little weird but I remember Pecco Bagnaia earlier this weekend I think pointing out that okay look even if I'm out in Q1 whatever remember my race in 2019 my rookie season where I started 13th and finished 4th you can do that on Philip Island and with Pecco Bagnaia, yeah, you can do that at Phillip Island, but with Pecco Bagnaia, it was also a sign of Ducati have somebody here. They have somebody here who is is legit. And with a bit of time, he can do this kind of thing consistently. I'm not saying Fabio Di Giannatoni is a Pecco Bagnaia-level talent, but I've, I've, I've seen a fair bit, man. I think it would be a real it would be a real bummer to lose him from the grid now, just just as he's he's finding this something special because this was a great ride but also he's just in a in a really good bit of form and look maybe maybe the end of the season won't be so rosy maybe he'll you know regress to the mean a little bit but i think in, in whichever way it happens i i'd really just i'd love him to stay i'd love to see what else he can do i think there's a lot of natural talent there from from what i've seen in, in junior racing and stuff i think he's a he's a good rider he's a clearly a clever guy uh a guy who 
does wear his heart in his sleeve a lot, but also is you know is smart about it and is you know you can take clearly seriously the things he says and even like if if it's Repsol Honda, yeah, like two races don't make a Repsol Honda ride in the past. Right now, Repsol Honda ride is whatever, but even if they're like just keep him on the grid. I just want to see more. I'm interested. I'm hooked. It's like the, it's 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 like a TV show that I you know watched a season and a half of without really being convinced that it's going anywhere, and now finally, sort of the end of season two, I'm like, oh, all right, I'm I'm interested. I want to I want to see where this goes. So, whenever it was becoming quite apparent what was happening in, in Saturday's race, but while nothing was actually happening at that time, um, I did a really quick skim over MotoGP's results, and there's only one MotoGP race winner in in modern history that has not had a MotoGP contract for the next season. Uh, it's it's literally only happened once, and there was a point where realistically it looked like DJ was was going to do that. Um, Who is it? Who's the one guy? Try Bayless. Oh, of course. Because yeah. he had a World Superbike contract yeah, for the next year. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the, he's the only one. He's the only one. Um, if DJ... It's 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 a shit, right? There's a, there's an obvious solution to DJ's problem right now if he doesn't get offered a Repsol Honda ride. And, and the bit that annoys me is that it's probably not going to happen because of the way that MotoGP has changed literally just in the last, like, couple of years. Um, if he didn't get a MotoGP seat for next year, he should be making a bold decision, a bold choice, and turning down Moto2 offers and turning down World Superbike offers. And he should be saying, I'm going to spend the next year being super fit, super ready. I am going to be the ultimate super sub. Good job. I am going to be the guy that whenever someone else inevitably gets hurt, you want on your bike. Um, for every and, manufacturer? Like, well, I mean... In the past, yeah, it would have been realistic, right? But you got to think that for Ornef Aprilia, um, he'd be a better option than Lorenzo Salvadori. Yeah. For LCR Honda, he'd be a better option than than Iker Lacona in terms of sponsorship, in terms of draw, in terms of publicity. You know, for, especially for satellite teams, th- there is an attractiveness to having someone at that level um, ready to throw under your bike. I mean... We've had a lot of injury replacements this year. We've had a lot of riders cycle through as, as you know, replacing hurt racers. And I, I would say that the one that got the most media attention all the way through the year was Danilo Petrucci. Because he's Danilo Petrucci. And and Fabio Antonio could bring a little bit of that magic, um, a little bit of that, that sort of star personality to pretty much any satellite team that needed a replacement rider. Uh, it's a gamble. It's a risk for sure. But, you know, find yourself an Italian superbike ride or a British superbike ride or something to keep yourself a little bit sharp and then just be available as the, you know, even go to Moto E so that you're still in the paddock. But don't commit to a full Moto 2 season that's going to leave you potentially, potentially forgotten if you go back to Moto 2 and you're not, you know, a regular podium finisher. I mean, look at Darren Binder this year. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've actually hit upon something there in this surreal silly season where Zarco is leaving the best bike on the grid by choice, where 
Franco Morbidelli, who finished the Australian Grand Prix basically in the Moto3 race, is moving on to Zarco's best bike on the grid for next season. I think the idea of Antonio going to Moto E to save his MotoGP future by just being nearby when someone is required is is a very logical one. Um, we I'm going to let you two have a very, very, very quick any other business. One thing each, one line, the last thing that you want to draw listeners' attention to that will pick up another time. Val, you stuck your hand up first. What is your other business this week? Yeah, the one the one time this weekend that I'm definitively focused not on the championship. I'm I'm here to watch. The title has been decided outside the window, so that's my uh, one other bit of business. <laughs> that's just I, I just find that really funny in qualifying. Apparently, a really good qualifying session from what I could see in the, out of the corner of my Hi. eye. Uh, bonus points for qualifying. Yeah, which honestly I do think is a kind of I like bonus points for qualifying even when stuff like this happens. And it it took a pole position by six thousands of a second, so. I'm happy with that. Anyway, that's not MotoGP at all in terms of MotoGP. Oh, I've put up my hand. If, just to... if that was a good idea, if points for qualifying, deciding titles was a good idea, I wouldn't have scheduled a podcast recording when the qualifying session w- was happening. Yeah, si- Simon's eye roll, which I think listeners could hear, sums up what uh, uh, the idea of qualifying points and championships being. It's bad enough that a championship could be decided in a sprint has been in F1 this year. Don't do it. No, stop. Whoever's just won the DTM title, give it back. Wait till this afternoon. Do it properly. However, it, if Jorge Martin listens to our podcast, he is now the world's number one advocate of Val's idea of championship points for qualifying in MotoGP. <laughs> yes. In terms of the like the MotoGP business, the actual topic of this podcast, allegedly, um, is another. It's just this exceptionally awful, super cranky weekend for Yamaha at a track where it used to used to be quite good for obvious reasons. Just nothing worked. Uh, maybe again the, the resemblance of, of race pace in clean air but there was never clean air and it wasn't you know, that competitive anyway and F- Fabio Quartararo continues to sound with every day even more like he's sound- sending out his CV to every single other team daily basically spamming email inboxes every day for 2025 um, I think there was a in his media session I think there was a telling answer. I'm not entirely sure what he meant by that, but there was, somebody asked him, so how long is this going to take to get on par with the others? Like, can you really do it in this winter? And he was like, we need 15 winters. <laughs> Which I, I, I don't know if he meant to, to get on par or to copy what Ducati and Aprilia are doing, because he then sort of caveated it by saying we need to do our own thing and figure out our own thing and get competitive through our strengths. But he also which doesn't, doesn't sound happy and he was asked if if Yamaha does make a genuine considerable step like are you staying and all he could muster was a maybe it's a maybe but there's not a lot of enthusiasm in in him talking about a a joint future with Yamaha and maybe part of that is publicly putting pressure on Yamaha but I think part of that is also this having been a brutal season for a rider who knows he's much better than this and we also know that so yeah and other teams in MotoGP also know that yeah it's, it says so much that, you know this is the man who was world champion two years ago riding for Yamaha which has been one of the two biggest teams on the grid for so so long and him making yet another threat to walk out is in, is in the any other business section of the podcast because it's so routine that he does that the, the language kind of escalates a percent or two every weekend but it's this is this is quarter and yamaha's life right now simon let's have your other business uh this weekend in the moto three race uh four riders crashed on the siding lap 
Two of them got back to the pits, one of them reporting, self-diagnosing himself with dizziness and the other with a bleeding wound on his forehead. And both of them were allowed out to race like eight minutes later because MotoGP's concussion protocols have sunk to an even new low. Um, imagine a rider telling you that they've got concussion symptoms and the medical team's still saying, you know what, you're fine. Jump on that bike literally right away. Like, go, go, go. You're fine. Um, man. It's been bad before, but honestly, this is garbage. It's fairly uh, stark, but uh, not unreasonable point. Let's uh, end on a Larry prediction again. Well, last week, we predicted what the points gap would be after Phillip Island, and we were all spectacularly wrong. So I think that's a good excuse to do it again. It's 27, it's 27 points right now. What is the gap going to be between Banyaya and Martin? We're assuming Banyaya is still ahead, but it might. You know, it's not impossible. There's a billion points a weekend now. Simon, what's the points gap going to be after Thailand next weekend? Uh, 34 points to Bagnaia. Val? 19 to Bagnaia, obviously. Mathematics. Mm. Oh, I was going to go roughly there. I'm going to go more Larry. 12 to Bagnaia. So check back with us next week to see how wrong we were about that. Hopefully we'll get two races next weekend. Thank you for your time. Did, did, anyone, write down, did anyone write down what we... What are, what last week? What we said last week? Because I can't remember what I said. Well, let's let's not bring uh, it up. One of, let's not do it. One of you said it would be exactly the same points gap, didn't you? I can't remember which one of you uh, what it was. Yeah, that was, was me. It, it, that was me. Yeah, it was Simon, and I told him that's mathematically unreasonable. <laughs> I stand by. In my defence, I thought we were having two races at that point. Yeah. I think I predicted Martin back ahead, so I'll continue to go as Larry as possible with predictions and. <laughs> You know, if we've been doing this longer in the season, we might have actually hit jackpot with how weird the season has become. Listener, thank you very much for your time. Val, get back to the DTM paddock. Simon, get some rest. We'll speak to you again in a week's time. Oh, Simon's put his hand up. Just one last thing to throw in there. Um, thank you so much to all the Aussie fans that come up to me this weekend and told me how much they love the podcast and the paddock because it turns out we have a lot of Australian fans. So thank you. Yeah, lovely. Thank you for that. Are they confused? Ah. Or are they listening to some other podcast? No, <laughs> when we do when we do listeners' questions, there's always so many Australian there's ones. There's always it, a lot of answering questions. Yeah, this it, is true. It is really appreciated, especially considering uh, this podcast doesn't have a great record for being positive about Jack Miller as well. So, thank you for <laughs> thank you for appreciating our fairness. <laughs> we'll speak to you again after the Tiger Grand Prix. The Athletic.